taken a psychology 101 course has learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if you've taken a psychology 101 course, you probably remember this, this triangle. Abraham Maslow had this theory that uh, humans are only going to be motivated to meet um, their, their more advanced needs if their basic needs are met. So for example, uh, we're not going to be concerned about uh, the meaning of life and our purpose in life if we're starving. Like we're we're going to be concerned about where is our next meal before we're concerned about what is the, the purpose uh, of life. When I look at that, that triangle of needs that Maslow came up with, what interests me is that God's word addresses every single one of them. God's aware of all of our needs. So if we start at the base of the triangle, our most basic physical needs, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. You can trust your heavenly Father. And what about safety? Well, God's word tells us that he is a strong tower. And the righteous run, run into that tower and they are safe. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And what about the need for love and belonging? Is there anybody on this planet that can love you more than God loves you? God's word says no. Like his love for you is a perfect love. When, when Paul tried to describe it, he couldn't describe it in width, length, depth, Height, it, it transcends our boundaries. It's bigger than we can even comprehend. What about esteem? Well, God says that we are created in his image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are knit together in our mother's womb by God. Every single one of us is a, a masterpiece. The word Paul uses in Ephesians is poema, which means poem. You are God's poem. That's, that gives us esteem. And then finally, the top of the triangle, meaning, purpose, God addresses all of that. Sometimes we hear people say these days, like, I'm living my best life, living my best life. And, and unless they're following Christ, they're living the Christ life, they are not living their best life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So God cares about all of our needs. So when we're talking about rescue, we recognize that God is a rescuer and he's inviting us, his church, to join him in rescue. And rescue is a lot broader than, than we may uh, at first comprehend. Like God wants to, to rescue us from everything that, that holds us captive. And so what does rescue mean for us? Well, it does mean uh, feeding the hungry and caring for the poor, and visiting the sick, and welcoming in the stranger. That's a part of the rescue plan that God has called us into. And rescue involves safety. It involves standing up against injustice and making sure that everybody is treated with, with dignity and given the, the rights that they deserve. And what about love? Rescue means loving your neighbor as you love yourself. What about esteem? Rescue means treating people with dignity, people that, that maybe the world would, would push to the margins, 
And we treat them with dignity. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. They are worthy of dignity. And we bring healing into Jesus' healing into all of our relationships. And finally, purpose. You know, rescue is uh, recognizing that we are, apart from Christ, like sheep, wandering without a shepherd. And so rescue involves bringing sheep without a shepherd and making an introduction to the, the great shepherd of our souls. This morning, we're going to read a powerful, dramatic rescue story, which we just kind of partially played out here in the, the children's sermon. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and we invite you this morning to penetrate our heart and our soul with the truth of your word and the power of your spirit. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 26. <clears throat> One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there They'd come from every village of Galilee from, and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. It's really important that we visualize what we just read. We, we've got to imagine it, and so to... to help, I want to show uh, the chosen uh, and how they depicted this scene. Uh, and I'll preface it with, I don't think they got everything right, uh, but it's still powerful to, to uh, see what, how this kind of looked like. So let's watch that. Jesus of Nazareth, I saw what you did to the leper on the road this morning. My friend has been paralyzed since childhood. He has no hope but you. Please, do for him what you did for the leper. Oh. 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 
What you wanted. Get out your tablet at least. Harry! Is he in danger? I don't know. No, I don't think so. He's got whom in there? Yes. Can you believe we're really here for this? authority do you teach? Answer me. If you are willing, Rabbi, you know you can't. Hey, I'm talking to you. By whom do you teach? Certainly not the authority of any rabbi from Nazareth. Where did you study? Your faith is beautiful. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. But I ask you, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? easy to say anything, no? But to show you, and so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, my son, rise. Pick up your bed.
by the time Jesus arrived in that house and was, was there teaching, he had already been engaged in numerous rescue operations. Previously, he had been in a synagogue where there was a, a man who was um, possessed with an evil spirit, and he cast that evil spirit out of the man right in front of everybody. And then he went to the home of Simon Peter, and at that home, he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then all day long, people, sick people were, were coming, and he healed all throughout the day. And then on the road, he was approached by a leper, and instead of uh, telling the leper to keep his distance, he went up to him, touched him, and healed him. So news about Jesus is rifling all across the, the Judean and the Galilean landscape. So much so that these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they have come from everywhere. It says they came from every town in Galilee. They came from Jerusalem. They came to Judea. They wanted to see for themselves this person that they've been hearing so much about. Now, they're there because they're curious, but it's more than that. This, for them, is an investigation because they are the religious gatekeepers. And they get to, they've assumed this responsibility that, that it is up to us to either approve of what you're doing and what you're saying, or to disapprove and censor you, to get you to stop. And so they've come, and this is where I think that the chosen gets it wrong. The, the passage says that they were sitting there which means they are in the home. They're based on their credentials of who they are. They get access. They get a front row seat. And so they, they have the best seat in the house. They are in the home. They're sitting there watching all of this transpire. Meanwhile, in the community, there is this man who is paralyzed. And this is a, a man that that we don't know the backstory. The, the scripture doesn't tell us, uh, was he paralyzed from birth? Was he paralyzed because of a freak accident? Was he paralyzed because of some recklessness or irresponsibility of his own? Like, is he default for his paralysis? We don't get the backstory, but in the bigger picture, the, the backstory doesn't really matter, does it? This is a man who needs to be rescued. Rescue comes first. And I think that's important for us to hear because we often want to know the backstory. And we want to assign blame and assign fault and to determine is this person really worthy of rescue? Rescue comes first. People are worthy of rescue, even even when they are at fault, even when they are to blame for the condition that they're in. And if you step back and think about it, doesn't that describe all of us? I mean, God said that we were rescued while we were yet still enemies, his enemies. God didn't rescue us because we, we were worthy of rescue because we are innocent. He rescued us because that's who he is. He is a, a rescuer. And so the same is true for the church. Far be it for any of us to judge whether someone is worthy of rescue or not. 
This man's paralyzed, and he happens to have some really good friends. These friends have heard that Jesus is in their community. They've heard the stories of what Jesus has done, and they reason if Jesus has healed others, why not our friend? And so they are determined, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, then the ball is in Jesus' court. Maybe he'll rescue him. Maybe he won't. We, can't, we have no control over that, but we can do everything in our power to get our friend to Jesus. So it is right for us to call them friends. But there's another thing that we could call those, those people. We could call them evangelists. Evangelists. That's exactly what they are. They are engaging in what today we call friendship evangelism. And, and we call it that thinking that this is some new idea, you know, to engage in evangelism through, through friendship. It's nothing new. It's the way uh, evangelism has worked since the beginning. And it's probably the most effective, powerful ways of evangelism. You have friends that you care about. You've experienced Jesus and, and all that he's done for you. Of course you want to make an introduction not in a manipulative way. You're not trying to manipulate your friends and your friendship isn't hinged on this introduction. But of course you want to make this introduction. And then what happens is entirely up to Jesus. Like we don't have the power to make salvation happen, to make rescue happen. But we do have the, the potential to do everything we can to, to make an introduction. And so that's what these friends are, are doing. And in Mark's account of this story. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that there's four men that are doing this, which is also interesting. This, this rescue, it's going to take more than just one person. It's going to take all four of them working together to pick up this bed and to get to this home where Jesus is. The church is uniquely equipped and designed by God to be engaged in rescue. Uh, many people would say, many people as they share their testimony of, of how they came to know Christ, and maybe this is true of you, there might be one significant person in that story, but it's often multiple people. God uses multiple people to accomplish his rescue. Here he uses four people. The church is uniquely designed to be engaged in rescue because here we are all working on the same team, all united in one mission that one more person might come to know the saving love of Jesus. And it is a mission that requires all of us. So they each grab a corner of the mat and they lift and they begin to carry him through the town until they get to the home where Jesus is. And once they get to the home, they're thinking, we did it. Like this, the hardest part of what we had to do, we, we just accomplished it. We've got it to, to where Jesus is. But they get there and they immediately run into an obstacle. The crowd is so large and they refuse to part ways so that they can get this paralyzed man on his mat through the door into the house and in front of Jesus. And just imagine that for a moment. What a, an embarrassing picture of human nature this is. What an embarrassing, shameful, 
convicting picture of, of human behavior. It's not like the crowd didn't see that this man was in need of rescue. But for some reason, they are unwilling to just make room so that he can get in to Jesus. And so what, what's the mentality? What is it that the, they're thinking? Well, we got here first. We got here first. And, and if we step aside and let the five of you in, that's going to push us further back. We're, we're charter members of this crowd. And so we don't want to inconvenience ourselves so, so that you can be rescued. I mean, that, they're not thinking all of that, but that's what's going on behind the surface. That's why just without even thinking, no, you're not going to get past us. I was thinking about the, the church. This, this happens in churches all the time. You know, like we, we get into the church and then we, we like things a certain way and we get comfortable and, and this is our church. We've been here a long time. And so we begin to kind of uh, uh, no longer recognize what it is that we're called to do. And so people who are in need of rescue may be shut out because we don't want to budge. We don't want to step aside. I, I've talked a lot in recent weeks about the state of the church in the United States and the number of churches that are, are closing their doors uh, on a yearly basis. It's staggering, the number of churches. And so we ask the question, why? Everyone wants to know, why? Why are so many churches closing their doors? And certainly there's a lot of reasons. I would suggest that one of them is, is when a church forgets the mission of rescue, they begin that, that downward trajectory on their life cycle. And you do that long enough, you forget what it is that you're called to do, in a, in a certain amount of time, you're gonna close your doors. We're called to engage in rescue. And so what I love about these four friends is they are determined. So naturally they would have gone through the front door, but now that, that way is blocked. And so they've got to think adaptively. They've got to be creative. If we're going to get our friend to Jesus, we've got to do something different. And so they begin to think about all the possibilities. And you heard some of them here on the, the children's sermon, go through the window, you know, get a horse, <laughs> plow down the crowd, get in there. They're thinking and they're throwing ideas. And then somebody throws out this idea. Let's go up on the roof. I mean, the roof is made out of tiles and, and mud and, and we could dig a hole through the top of the roof. And I, and I suspect that when that person mentioned that idea, the first reaction was probably like, no, we can't do that. We're, we're not going to go through the roof. But then they started thinking about like, well, we want to get, we've got to get our friend to Jesus. Why not go through the roof? This is what the church is up against today. It, it's tough right now. Rescue is not easy. There are obstacles that, that the church is bumping up against. And so we have got to think creatively. We've got to think adaptively. What are we going to do to introduce people to Jesus? Uh, you'd say, that, think outside the, the proverbial box. So, so why not do church around a dinner table? That's outside of the, the box. 
We've done that, and, and God has blessed it. Why not have a, a block party? You know, wherever you live, or a block party around the church, which our shepherding elders are planning right now. Why not do that to try and introduce our neighbors to, to Jesus? Why not think about your workplace, not just as the place that you go to, to make a living, but as your, your mission field? Like maybe I'm, I'm going to have a Bible study at the place where I, I work. Why not try something adaptive, creative? What do we have to lose? So the next thing you know, they are up on the roof. They're tearing a hole through it, and they are lowering this man down. And, and remember, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were sitting there. They had a front row seat. So that means all the debris is falling down on their heads. There they are in their robes, and, and, and this debris is falling down. You know they can't be happy about this. Truth be told, they probably would rather that this person doesn't get rescued than create all the, the mess and the interruption, the disruption that it's creating. The man is lowered down, and then something truly amazing happens, something that is going to mess with your theology. Jesus observes faith, but it's not the faith of the paralyzed man that he observes. It's the faith of the friends that he observes. And when he sees their faith, he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. This man's sins are forgiven on account of his friend's faith. Jesus doesn't even extract a profession of faith from this man. In other healing stories, he often asks, what do you want me to do for you? Do you believe I have the power to do this? None of that. He sees the faith of the friends, turns to the man and says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. This has got to cause all of us to, to pause and consider our own faith for our friends. What kind of faith are we demonstrating for our friends? friends. God is a lover of faith. And I won't go as far as saying faith moves God, but, but faith captures God's attention. And it's not just the faith of the person who needs to be rescued. In this case, it's the faith of the friends. And again, this translates for the church. God loves when his church acts in faith by engaging in the mission of rescue. That is an act of faith, and God loves it, and God acts. So that's part of what we're doing here. We need to come together, we need to fan into flame the fire that exists in all of us so that we stay engaged in this mission. God loves it when his church does that. So Jesus didn't get the, the memo about Maslow's hierarchy of needs because instead of attending to his most pressing need, which was obviously his paralysis, he jumps right to the top of the triangle. And he turns to him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And now the Pharisees with debris scattered on their robes, they come unhinged. This is absolute blasphemy. 
I mean, who does Jesus think he is? The only person that can forgive sins is God alone. This is truly blasphemy, and they are absolutely right, unless he is God. If he's God, then they're wrong. If he's God, he has the authority to forgive sins. Well, surely if he performs a miracle right in front of them, they're going to believe, right? Don't we hear that today? People say, if God would just do this, then I'd believe. And, and the truth of the scripture is, no, you wouldn't. If you don't believe be Jesus' resurrection from the grave, you're not going to believe anything else. If that's not enough to convince you, there's nothing else that God's going to do that's going to convince you. And so Jesus turns to the man and he says, or turns to the religious leaders and said, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, obviously, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody could say that. And there's no proving it. There's no way to verify it. But to say, get up and walk, everyone's going to turn and look at the man. And we're going to know in an instant, you're either a fraud or you are who you say you are. And so Jesus, so you all know that I am the son of man and I have the authority to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up and walk. And he did. He gets up and walk. And he had to come in through the roof, but he walks out through the front door. And all those people earlier who refused to budge, to let him in, now they're in awe and they make way and they, they let this man walk out right past them. So as I think about the church, it's my hope and I believe it is all of our hopes that working together, we would be a church that is engaged in rescue. That we wouldn't forget what it is that we have been called to be about a church engaged in rescue, a church where the lost are found, where captives are set free, where the sick are healed, where the lonely are loved, where strangers are welcomed. It's my hope, it's my prayer, it's my expectation that we be a church that makes room, that makes room for them because in truth, we are them. We are them. We are all people ourselves in need of rescue. And room had to be made for us, and room still needs to be made for us. And so we're going to make room for other people. People in need of rescue by a gracious, powerful, merciful, loving God. That's what we're going to be about.